Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, here with Rich Klein. We're going to do a tribute to Phil Necro, the Nuxie, the, the, the famous knuckleballer, but don't think he was just a knuckleballer. He was a great athlete, has great stats. I'm not sure he's getting the hobby love, seeing somebody passing. The, the silver lining is that his career gets a second look, and uh, it's certainly worthy when you look at not just longevity, but a lot of excellence. If you can pitch till you're 48, that's uh, pretty amazing, and you can get people out with slow stuff. Thanks, sponsors. Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication, Comsi.com, Burbank Sports Cards, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Heritage Auctions, Huggins and Scott Auctions, Tops, Upper Deck, and Panini. Phil Necro, he's got lots of cards, but he's gone now at the age of 81 after he had cancer. So, Rich, uh, welcome to the show. And Phil Necro, I imagine he is somebody that uh, when you started coming on strong with baseball, he was probably into his career. I observed him from the beginning. I've talked about the first packs I really remember were third series 68 with all the superstars in them. He's in there too. Yeah. And he was coming off an NL ERA title 1.87. His personal catcher in 67 was one Bob Euchre. And it's interesting because he and Euchre for Negro's first three years of their career, their cards actually parallel. I'm not going to talk about value, but parallel in what series they're in. Yeah. 64, they're both high numbers. 65, they're both semi-highs. And 66, they're both first series cards. They par- they weren't teammates or anything. They just had parallel cards. And his rookie card is a reasonably difficult high number card to get in 64. You, you do see it, but you don't see a lot of them compared to some of the other rookies of the time. And Hall of Fame high number rookie cards, that's one card I think that might actually be undervalued. And part of the issue was that he wasn't a fastball pitcher. He threw slow, slowest, and slowest. But the thing that people don't realize, he wasn't a fastball pitcher, but he was a strikeout pitcher. The, the game is how do you get the guy out and how do you keep the other team from scoring runs? So we're talking about a guy that had earned run average title as well as a strikeout title. He led the league in strikeouts. He also had a bunch of gold gloves along the way. He fielded his position very well. And it's interesting because one of his childhood friends was John Hondo Havlicek. And I believe they were high school teammates and they both lasted a long time in their respective sports more than most players do. Hondo was still a high-level basketball player, 36, 37 years old. And even in his last game, and there's a video of it, CBS televised it nationally, and they had to cut short the final time he left because the Masters insisted, you give us full coverage. And that was part of the Masters coverage. So you don't get to see Havlicek leave the court for the final time. But even in his last game, he was still at the age of 37, playing very effectively. Negro had another 10 years at that point. So both of them were really good. I think it's Bridgeport, Ohio. My family lived in Wheeling, West Virginia, across the river in those days. And so and I think Hondo and Necro, I think they were the same age or very close. And then, of course, uh, Phil had his brother, Joe, who also has passed away now. That's tough. I went to the Hall of Fame fantasy camp that 13 years ago, I think. And uh, the counselors, <laughs> the Hall of Famers who were there, each got to bring uh, a friend just to have fun. And so Ozzie Smith was one of them. And he brought... Vince Coleman, George Brett was there. And I'm trying to remember who he brought. I don't remember that just right now. I assume he didn't bring Rush Limbaugh with him, who was a friend of his when he was with the Royals. But George Brett and then Robin Roberts, who was the elder statesman, and he's passed away now too. And then Phil Necro, and he brought his brother, Joe. And I told you, John Warden was the MC, and everything was just a lot of fun. But Phil, you know, could take a joke, but he was a great athlete. And he had to be in his 60s at that time. And he's out there throwing the ball and uh, playing pepper and all this stuff with all of us uh, campers. 
and I'm 10 years younger, but he still, it didn't look like he could play. Ozzie Smith looked like he could still play. George Brett looked like he could still play because they're uh, 10 years younger. So maybe more than 10 years younger. But And the famous story, Joe Necro hit exactly one homer in his major league career. <laughs> Off his brother, Phil. <laughs> that's, uh, and you better believe as the younger brother, Joe probably never let Phil forget Hey, I homered off you. Unless Phil proved it. That was the game-winning hit. In retrospect, talk about cards that would have been cool to have had. Could you imagine a dual-signed card like that? Because both of them sign reasonably well, and maybe nobody thought about it. Phil Necro, one of the things, Sports Card Insights, is that there's plenty of Phil Necro signed cards out there. If you really want one, you can find one. It'll be reasonably priced after this brief, brief spike when people remember him again. And... You'll have a Hall of Fame autograph, and it won't be that expensive. And he was a very willing signer. That's one of the best parts of having the signed cards of today's world, is well, being able to remember people like that. If a guy's a willing signer, and I think, but when I looked at the Beckett OPG, the online price guide, they have a kind of a profile. You can look it up by player, look up Phil Necro, and I find he's got a couple thousand cards. That's all. And the market cap of the ones that probably have 25 or more copies is less than $20,000. Way less than $20,000. So you think, oh, if I had $20,000, instead of buying one card of Luca, I could buy all the Phil Nico, an example of every Phil Nico card. That's not quite true because the there's a not priced aspect of many of the cards that are numbered to less than, say, 20 or 25 in the OPG. And some of the one-of-ones would probably be in some demand as we speak. Kevin Green just passed away, and I'm having a run on Kevin Green. Phil Nico, probably the same thing. When you get the greater scrutiny of his career and the fact that he wasn't just a boring knuckleball pitcher, he was an exciting knuckleball pitcher, the consummate teammate, a complete player, and even has one game where he threw a shutout later in his career without ever throwing a knuckleball. Yeah, correct. It's actually a little more fun than that. It's the final game of the 85 season for his 300th win against the Toronto Blue Jays. And yes, he goes the whole game without throwing a knuckleball until the final batter, Jeff Burroughs. Okay. He does throw a knuckleball to Burroughs to end the game. But he basically went the whole game for his 300th victory just to show that he could throw a win a game without the knuckleball. And it was really a cool story. And in New York, I think we got to see that game on TV. So it was really exciting to see. In those days, the Yankees picked him up after the Braves let him go. And he was effective for a couple more years. Even though his career was ended, I did score props in 1988 for, in a sense, doing a farewell Phil Necro card with the Atlanta Braves where he got to conclude his career. Today, we would call it a one-day contract. I think they signed him at the very end. They weren't going to be competitive in 87, so they let him come back and conclude his career with the Braves. It's a quarter card, but it's a career card. It has the career stats on it, and it's really a nice card. I think that's a great culmination of a playing card career. 24 years after his rookie card, he gets a final card. One of the reasons he doesn't get enough hobby appreciation is because, and I don't know about the sabermetric folks, his one loss record isn't that great. I and mean, he won a lot of games, but he lost a lot of games. People forget that when he was on the Braves, it was right before they got good. When he was on the Braves, they weren't good. They went to the playoffs a couple times, but they made their great run right after he left. And so when you're pitching for a last place team and you're winning more than you're losing, and they're losing a lot more than they're winning, you're a really good pitcher. We think of the Braves of a, a while back as making the playoffs every year. That was right after he left. Yeah, yeah, that was a couple of years after he left. They make the playoffs in 69, the first year of divisional play, and then 82. And I believe he's 17 and 4 in 82. I think he wins 20 games in 69. Both years, he's really key to them going to the playoffs. 83, they're competitive again. 
And they were a really good team, but then they went into the doldrums. He leaves after 83 and takes a few years after that for the Braves to get good. But in the 70s, every year, the Braves are not really competitive. It's the Reds and the Dodgers in the NL West, and the Braves are an afterthought. They're the biggest thing for the Braves in the early 70s was Hank Aaron and the chase of 715, and everything else was basically an afterthought. And then when he doesn't have the greatest team behind him. Right. Not fair. I think it's not Plus, fair. he's playing in a ballpark, which we call the launching pad at the time. It was the best home run hitting ballpark in baseball. So that also affected ERA, that affected all sorts of things. It was the best hitting park until Coors Field, Colorado, comes along. Uh, Okay, for his cards, you would say 64, go for it. 65, go for it. 66, not so much. 67, not so much. 68, go for it. 67 is, I think, a semi-high card. I would definitely maybe not use the word go for it, but I wouldn't reject it out. 66 and 68 get easy. 67 is my favorite set of the 60s. And it's a slightly more difficult card, so I don't want to reject. I would put a definitely third between 64 and 65, both of which are two-player rookie cards. 65 is also has Clay Carroll, who's a pretty decent relief pitcher for his career as a rookie card, so it's not a bad card. And 64, as we said, was a high number, and then 67, and then he has a 72 semi-high, and I believe 73 is a little easier, but also a semi-high, and then then it's just a matter of some of the weirder oddballs things that pop up along the way for his career. And then the signed cards of the last 20 years. I guess Topps maybe still does this a little bit. Back in the day, when it was only Topps, the number of the card also demonstrated the esteem that Topps had for the player. And Phil Necro did not get immediate respect. Or the five a lot of the times to indicate he was a better player, but he didn't get the 50 or 100 that indicated, okay, these are our key players. Every once in a while, Topps would throw somebody really goofy into the I think Cleet Boyer's number 550 and 68. It's just a goofy thing that every once in a while they, they didn't get it quite right. But for the most part, if you were 100, definitely, and 50, usually. And then the 25s were the third level. And I don't think he really got a lot of those during his career. He got card number 30, yeah, which means a little better player, but not the first level or the second level or maybe even the third level. Just a nice star, better player, deserving of respect. Back in the simpler days when I was a kid, you'd wake up on a Saturday morning. You'd go to the neighborhood field. You'd just walk over there. There'd be a bunch of other kids over there. And occasionally, there'd be a bigger kid or some kid that knew how to throw a knuckleball because it was starting to be a thing. Later in life, as I was playing different sports and different leagues and things like that, playing softball, but it's hard to throw a knuckleball with softball. But with a baseball, but it's hard to catch a knuckleball, much less hit a knuckleball if somebody really knows how to throw it. That's why there are like no knuckleballers left in baseball. I believe the last knuckleballer in the last five years is a guy named Stephen Wright who pitches for the Red Sox. And then taking Tim Wakefield's place, who was really the last full-time knuckleballer. Wakefield won 200 games in his career, and everybody's trying to get these guys to throw 94, 95, 96, 98, 100. There's a place in baseball for the guy that doesn't throw 98. If you know how to pitch and you have something like that. We mentioned Joe earlier. One of the greatest rotations for a few years until unfortunately James Rodney Richard got the stroke, was that for a couple of years, the Astros had, what they would do is they would pitch Nolan Ryan one day, Joe Negro the knuckleball the next day, James Rodney Richard the third day. You have the fastball guy, you have the knuckleball guy, you have the fastball guy. If you face those three guys in consecutive games, your timing is goofed up for a couple of weeks after that. And there's, baseball has become so analytical and you're better at, much better at analytical than I am. You have that PhD in statistics. I'm just, I just do it instinctively. But there is something to be said for mixing it up like that instead of just trying to get everybody throwing 98 all the time. 
I don't know how Phil decided to go to the dark side to be a knuckleball pitcher. And like I said, I spent a week with him and I never thought to ask the question and maybe I should have because I don't think he threw his knuckleball in high school, but he was a late bloomer. And I'm just thinking sometimes the guys go to knuckleball because like Tim Wakefield, I think his stuff wasn't good enough. And then I was thinking, when was the last time somebody was a left-handed knuckleballer? I don't think there's a really good one. I'll point out that Bob Euchre had caught a knuckleballer and Barney Schultz. Yeah. The Cardinals, I think. And Bobby Shantz, I think, occasionally threw a knuckleball by that point of his career, too. He had experience and he may have suggested to Negro, hey, you've got something here and I'll be your personal catcher and let's go. And I think that changed his career. Hey, just start throwing this. I'll, I'll run to the backstop and get it for you. It, isn't that when they invented the giant glove? Richard like, invented the giant glove with Hoyt Wilhelm in the late 50s and Gus Triano's behind the plate. Yeah. But it's the same principle. They get the giant glove because just you want to have game. more ways to bat it down because the ball doesn't go like a normal pitch. When I was playing, I was a good base runner, and you would think you would be able to steal on a knuckleballer because the pitch is going to come in slow, the catcher's going to have trouble handling it, and you'd think anybody on first base is going to be on second. It's all a matter of how you hold the runner on. So do you think that's an aspect of gold glove? I think that's an aspect to it, and he also fielded his position very well. But I always think of gold glove just of fielding your position, but it may be that for a pitcher, the gold glove is also being savvy about holding base runners on because it's part it of the It definitely is. Andy Pettit should have won a gold glove in every year for the way he could pick people off first base because you had to worry if you were on first base and Andy Pettit was on the mound. Wait a second. I better not go very far. He can get me and make it look perfect for any umpire. Do you think his move was perfectly legal, Andy Pettit? Because I think he... I, I think it was borderline, but I think by the time he got the reputation, nobody's going to call it anymore. <laughs> got institutionalized, yeah. Yes. And that happens. You get a good reputation and you'll get the breaks. And there's something to be said for being a supremely talented athlete. And there's no doubt that the, both Negro Brothers and Hondo Havlicek were right. very good athletes, great athletes, and they lasted a long time. And in a sense, they got certain benefits of the doubt. Phil Negro was a superstar. And now he's passed away at 81 from cancer. And I'm thankful that those who try to uh, find out what made him great, I think he was a really outstanding person and uh, a quality athlete to, to stay at that level for that long. So thanks, Rich. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, uh, listeners. Dig into to, uh, the full Negro stats and cards and uh, enjoy. He's uh, absolutely worthy of having your collection and, and he's in mine. So thanks, everybody. We'll be back again tomorrow for another episode. The man-